Our scripture reading this morning is Mark 10, 28 to 31. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Paul once gave a last word to a church. He was on the final leg of his third missionary journey and he was pressing forward from Greece in order to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost. Uh, he was traveling south by boat along the western coast of Asia Minor and Luke is actually accompanying him at this point and gives us a detailed first-hand report. Sailing from there we arrived the following day opposite Chios and the next day we crossed over to Samos. And the day following, we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So he bypassed Ephesus and went to a port uh, that was about 20 miles by land, although you'd have to cross some water to get there. Uh, he called for the Ephesian elders. And he wanted to remind them of, and through them, the Ephesian church as well, he wanted to remind them, here's where we've been. Here's some key truths that are pertinent to what you're going to face in the future. He said, this is now verses 22 and 23 of Acts 20, and now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying, that bonds and afflictions await me. <laughs> He's in a hurry to get there. God gave Paul a glimpse of the future. Uh, we won't cover it, but there was an incident where someone was saying, it actually took his belt and said, this is what's gonna happen to you. And everybody was saying, obviously God is providing advanced information so that you won't go there. And he said, no, he's providing advanced information so you won't be shocked when it happens. <laughs> it wasn't, a, information that was designed to redirect him but to bolster a very realistic faith this is what you're looking at so he called for the Ephesian elders they met with him he said some words to them and then he finished and we read this and when he had said these things he knelt down and prayed with them all and they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship. So Paul imparted a last word, which was a, a look back and a look forward to the Ephesian church. I'm not comparing myself to Paul, <laughs> but I have wondered, what would I say to the church of Memphis if this were my last word? And I've landed on four key topics that from my perspective, this is the, uh, if I leave you with nothing, 
this is what I want to leave you with. Now, two of these talks, the next week and the following, actually answer to our six challenges. But the one this, this morning and the last one are really about how to make the most of your time. I don't know how long we're here. How can we make the most of it? So this morning, I'm going to help you understand something I like to call the great exchange. It's discussed in numerous passages. In fact, you could do a whole sermon series on this because it's a topic that shows up again and again. But interestingly, it is introduced by Jesus in the passage that immediately follows the one we looked at last week. So let me do a little review to help get us up to speed. In verse 17 of Mark uh, 10, we're introduced to a man who asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave an answer to his question, but it wasn't what he wanted to hear. Jesus outlined four specific action steps that would actually identify a cancer of the heart that he had. And if he would take those steps, he would address that cancer and he would inherit eternal life. Specifically, Jesus said, one thing you lack, here's four verbs, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, I didn't note it last week or the week before, but there's an amazing prediction embedded in that verse. He says, do this, 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 and you will have treasure in heaven. And that's a future tense. It's saying, this is going to happen. He gave him the command, go, sell, give, and here's what your future looks like. Now, it's not clear if, if uh, treasure in heaven refers to some sort of currency exchange. In other words, you do this, and it translates into a currency that you will enjoy the benefit of in heaven, or if that's just a euphemism for the richness of life in heaven. I don't know which it is. But regardless, by holding on to his stuff, because that's what he did, Jesus said, go, sell, give. And he decided, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave, but I'm not going to sell and I'm not going to give. And he made a disastrous investment decision. No U-Hauls, follow hearses. When he died, none of what he had went with him. <laughs> Jesus told him, this was kind of a shocker, I think, for him, one thing you lack. This is a guy who had never lacked anything. And Jesus said, one thing you lack. So he walked away sad. He was not sad because of an opportunity missed. He doesn't actually see it. He's sad because he perceives that the cost is too extreme. The cost is too great. Now, if he saw in the light of eternity what he would potentially be giving up and what he would gain, the core problem is this. He doesn't see who Jesus is. Those who see who Jesus is do what he says and are delighted to do so. Well, then last week we picked up with verse 22. 
And we looked at this kind of sidebar conversation that Jesus had with the disciples. They, they watched this guy fading into the distance and, and they're hearing Jesus say how hard it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. And so they're going, what? And had a conversation. And Jesus actually explained that having stuff, which is basically the, the core meaning of who is rich. He has a lot of stuff. He says, that is a disadvantage for a follow me decision. Having a lot of stuff makes it harder to do what is hard for everybody. Self-rescue is impossible for anyone and having no lack actually adds the, the, to the difficulty. So in this sidebar conversation, it culminates in this word, looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible. It is, everyone in this room, self-included, are lost causes. It is not possible for me to do anything to save me. Saving people, even those with stuff, is simply not possible. There's that word adunatos for men. But God is perfectly capable of saving all impossibles. God can rescue us from extreme peril. He can provide an inheritance of eternal life. He can make it possible for us to receive treasure in heaven. He can grant us entrance to the kingdom of God. All of that's in that passage. So last week we said this, God does the impossible by saving those who come to him with nothing but faith in him. And then we said this, but God is also interested in working through people of mustard seed faith to be agents of impossible rescues. Hang on to that because when we look at what he says in the next bit, this is critical. God is interested in working through you, working through me, to do the impossible, to be a part of a process in which God rescues lost people. So we asked, who's your lost cause? Who's your impossible to save? Who needs spiritual breakthrough and release from bondage? And I challenge you to each ask God to show you your part. How do you want to work through me to make an impossible difference in the life of somebody else? Okay, now you're ready for what follows. Peter brings something to Jesus' attention. <laughs> it's kind of a, excuse me. <laughs> and then Jesus answers by declaring something astounding. Something that the rich young ruler has just walked away from and doesn't even know, doesn't get it. Peter began, this is verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Now, Peter sometimes gets a bad rap. He's asking the question that everybody's thinking. It's an application question. You just said it's impossible, and we just saw this guy be challenged. Drop everything, follow me. And I can't help but think, Jesus, that's just what we did, right? Jesus doesn't rebuke him, but actually answers what he says, which is Jesus' way of saying, good point. 
Peter began to say to him, and he says, behold, he's actually giving a, an imperative. See this? Do you, and it's, I wonder if there's a, don't you see this? We have left everything, and left is an heiress, meaning we did that in a moment of time, and followed you, and that's a perfect, which means it was something that happened in the past and has continued with an abiding result even to this day. We've left everything, and we have been following you. And as they watch this rich young ruler walk away, this is all happening in the same moment. They watch him walk away, and I, it's hard not to think that they are not seeing something and when Peter is saying, see this, he's recalling this, Mark 1. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They don't know it yet, but that means people who do impossible things along with me. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Simon accepted a new calling to become a man fisher. <laughs> He's watching the rich young ruler who's been given the offer of a lifetime walk away. He's been t Jesus has talked about how tough it is. And then, Jesus, then Peter, who's seeing this, he's saying, behold, see this. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Watching the rich young ruler walk away, it was very natural for Peter to reflect back on his follow-me moment. Ari Cole says this. I love this quote. Everyone who follows Christ ultimately makes the same sacrifice for everyone must give all that they have. And Christ does not reckon the sacrifice as great or small by the amount given, but by the amount withheld for self. The twelve couldn't help but think of their own rich young ruler moments, and they wanted to know if Jesus saw it. And Peter voiced what was true for all. Behold, is a call for Jesus to see this. And Jesus answers. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. And we'll get to the next verse in a minute. Now, just to be clear, uh, Peter and Andrew still had a house in Capernaum. Uh, some of the disciples still owned boats, even after the resurrection. They are able to go out on their boats when Jesus meets them on the shore, and they have this incredible encounter. Some were married, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 9.5. So this is not a calling to monastic living. He's, he's not saying... I want you to ditch everything and follow me. Something different is going on here. Housing, houses, siblings, parents, children 
livelihoods are all potential costs of following Jesus. And in a moment where you have to choose between the two, you must choose allegiance to Jesus, commitment to the gospel, when it costs these things. That's what he's talking about. He's saying when you have to make a choice and there's no middle option, you choose, I'm going to follow Jesus, even though it is going to potentially mean that this relationship is damaged or destroyed, I will choose Jesus. Jesus made this very clear. Here's Luke 12. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. You get what's going on here? I can't wait to bring judgment on those who defy me, but I have a task to do first, which is I have to die first. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. What? Don't we sing about it? Peace on earth. I don't think I came to grant peace on earth. Jesus is talking. I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I realize that we live in a world that we don't experience what the persecuted church in many places in the world is experiencing. We're moving there. Maybe not there yet. Although some in this room, you've experienced this. Your allegiance to Jesus Christ has cost you a close family relationship. And Jesus says, when, as often as you encounter that kind of a choice, an extreme cost choice, family rejection, I follow Jesus, no matter the cost. That's what Jesus wants. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. That was the rich young ruler. And he who has lost his life for my sake, that's Peter and the disciples, will find it. The twelve had done precisely that. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left. So first, truly, that's the word amen. Peter says, behold, we've left everything to follow you. And he says, amen. Jesus is saying, right on. And then he says, there is no one who does A for whom verse 30 is not relevant. In other words, those who can be described by verse 29. In other words, when I had to choose between the things that we hold dear and following Jesus, I chose following Jesus. Those who can be described in those terms are going to experience verse 30. And no one 
will miss out who does this. Okay, well, what's verse 30? Uh, No one who does this, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Every single person who makes a Jesus-first-no-matter-the-cost decision will realize three benefits. No one will be missed out. Two are present benefits, and one is a future benefit. When you go all in for Jesus, despite the cost, you will enjoy a 100-fold familial blessing. You will enjoy the benefit of multiple houses and livelihoods. <laughs> and you're going, what? How is this possible? Let me explain. I'm going to just use some personal illustrations to help give you the idea, and then I think you'll get it. Uh, so I have to tell you about uh, something that we did at Collierville Bible Church. I've got here my, uh, one of my prayer things. I pray for all kinds of people, and I'm going to show you a couple cards from in there. This is the Tuesday through Friday cluster. And uh, at Collierville Bible Church many years ago, this would be in the late 2000s, like 2008, around there, we started asking a question, God, we want to, in what we're doing in missions, we want to not just send people, we want to actually, as a church, make a difference in another part of the world. And we explored some different options, but God eventually led us to a group of people called the Banjara in India. And there are about Uh, it's hard to count because they're the ancestors of the gypsies, but there's about 60 million of them. And uh, no Christian presence. Well, God developed some connections uh, based on some things we did, and we started to engage with his people. And so uh, one of the things we did, I think the, the first time that I went there was in 2009. And what you're seeing here is a youth conference. This was the first time Banjara youth had ever been together Uh, and they came together, and you can see me and my friend and translator, Srinivas, there, and um, this was at a a Bible college that let us come, so they all came from wherever they were. Some of them lived in the city where we were, and God did something in that conference that was really fun, and I want to read you something. This is uh, one of my prayer things. But basically, it starts with a copy of a a message I received on Facebook. This is from a fellow by the name of Isaac Nyack. He's somewhere in that room. And here's what he said. By the way, uh, they call me Jim Uncle among the Banjara. So, thank you, Uncle, for accepting my friend request after a long time of request. I can never forget you. You are always there in my testimony as one who took part with Jesus to transform my life in a three days of conference at Hyderabad, India, uh, India, I think about five years back. All your words penetrated into our hearts. I can still remember the way you teach us the word of God so smartly by raising few questions and answering them to us and concluded the conferences by discipleship. It was marvelous time. I love you, uncle. Now I am with a lot of desires to be part like an instrument in the hands of Jesus to extend his kingdom on earth Pray for me and for all my plans in him. I love you so much. Much needed your prayers to me. Thank you. Feeling happy. (laughs) So uh, I took that, and I have been praying for Isaac uh, that he would bear 100-fold fruit because when the seed falls on good soil, that's what it does. It produces 30, 60, 100-fold. That he would be bold 
and not fearful because he's in a place where the darkness is closing in and it's costly to name the name of Jesus, but that he would also be wise and have guidance. I prayed for him to get a ministry partner, so this was 2009. He has a wife now and several children, uh, and for him to be a man of humility. He's involved in ministry, and I continue to follow his ministry, and I continue to pray for him daily. What's going on here? He's a brother in Christ. God gave me a brother. And I don't know how many have come to Christ through his ministry, but I've got some grandkids or something. I don't know what we'd call them. Uh, that's a part of my family. When the trumpet sounds and we go, go to the presence of Jesus, I'm going to go, Isaac, that is so cool. Come here, brother. And he's going to call me uncle. He's going to say, Jim, uncle, and we'll have a hug. That's what Jesus is promising in this passage. He says, nobody who's all in for Jesus is going to lack for, in this case, brothers. Now, I want to show you another picture. This is, now, you have to understand, in the year 2000, the number of Banjara believers was a, kind of a handful, maybe. Uh, this is a gathering to celebrate. This was kind of like our 10-year celebration of what God had been doing among the Banjara. And there's, I don't know how many are here, but it's a thousand or more. Almost all of them believers. Some of them were not. And, uh, you know, this was a conference where we were just celebrating how God had been at work. And these are believers who, it's costly to name the name of Jesus. So I did some talks there. And in one of the talks, uh, before I started, they came up and they handed me a newborn baby. <laughs> you know, maybe three or four days old. And I looked at Srinivas and I said, I'm not familiar with the pre-sermon baby. What, what are we doing here? And he said, they want you to name the, the baby. <laughs> okay. So I talked with him about, because they uh, have different vocalization, you know, what are some good options? And so I said, um, how about David? Which... That's actually my first name. In fact, I would like to, if there was one thing I'd like to do to change the world, Jim means conniver, David means beloved. I'm okay with you calling me David. I might not answer to it because i got to get used to it. But anyway, so I said, okay, and here is what I will do. I am pledging to pray for David for the rest of my days. And so that's what I've been doing. So here's my, my card for David Nyack. And uh, it says, open his eyes to the knowledge that he is beloved by God. Open his heart to return that love. Make of him a champion for Christ among the Banjara. And that's what I pray for for him. If God answers that prayer, I can't wait to see when the trumpet sounds. I'm going to go, David, is that you? <laughs> and who are these people with you? That's what... Jesus is describing. You are my family, and I am yours. Well, what about mansions and farms and all that, Jim? I mean, that, you know, uh, I don't know that I've been able to do anything in a, somebody's mansion. Okay, well, let me show you one more, okay? So, 10 years ago, I retired uh, from Collierville Bible Church, and we took a year to just kind of recharge, refresh, renew, but 
as that was going on, we thought, you know, I don't, I don't know whether I'm really done yet. Uh, I feel like there's more I could do, maybe. Well, then I got connected with uh, Interim Pastor Ministries, and we went to different assignments. We did a couple in uh, Iowa, and then the last one was in Minnesota. I thought this was so interesting. So uh, normally, that hasn't been the case here because our home is nearby, but in most cases, the church would provide a place to live. And so uh, when we went to Minnesota, which this would be in 2020, uh, somebody had an extra house. I, I don't understand this idea of an extra house. But anyway, somebody had an extra house. And this was not just an extra house. Here's a, a look at it. It's a, uh, it's a mansion. And I've left out the number pieces on the, you know, I just did a screenshot from Zillow. But um, this is a home that Rochelle and I lived in for until our concluding our season in Rochester. And this is up on top of a, I don't think mountain's the right word, but it's definitely up on a, a prominent location. And we lived there. And that, how does that happen? I don't know. All I know is we said, Jesus, we will go where you want us to go. We will do what you want to do. And he says, well, here, here's an extra house you can use. And we lived large. In fact, I thought this would be uh, fun to show you, which is, uh, so there's a, a jacuzzi in the house, and this is the view from the jacuzzi. <laughs> now, remember how I've talked to you about, behold, the Lord comes, see this? The jacuzzi is the place where we would have these incredible Minnesota sunsets, and I would, and this is what I visualize. This image that you see is, I see Jesus coming in the clouds, and this is what it looks like. And that's what Jesus says is yours if you will go all in for me. With men, saving someone is impossible, but not with God. And he wants to do the impossible through us. And get this, everyone who follows Jesus, no matter what, will enter into a vast spiritual family of brothers and sisters and mothers and children. We are that family. Now, notice, by the way, in the passage, he doesn't say, and fathers, because father doesn't change. There is one father. But you are my brothers, my sisters, mothers, children. I can't imagine what a shock it's going to be for a guy who went to Harvard in 1957 here was this guy, he was a speaker in the main auditorium, and I was there. I was six, Harvard Elementary, <laughs> VBS. And I won't tell the whole story, you've heard it before, but as he spoke, my heart was in awe. He talked about the solution for sin being to name Jesus as Savior, and this six-year-old heart knew that. Now, does the Harvard guy know, know <laughs> that he has a spiritual son? <laughs> and I don't know how the Lord's going to work this out, but when the trumpet sounds and I stand in the presence of Jesus, 
I'm pretty confident either he or I are going to look at one another, we're going to lock eyes, and I'm going to go, aren't you the Harvard guy? You're part of the reason I'm here. Now that is the good news. There's some bad news. If you follow Jesus all in, you will receive persecution in this age. And this can jeopardize our devotion. If you look at the parable of the soils, the very word diogmas that's used for the tribulation or the persecution is used in that passage. But it can also serve a good purpose. And Paul, who dealt with persecution, says this, concerning this I employed, implored the Lord three times that it might leave me a thorn in the flesh. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions. By the way, there's our word. With difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Persecution puts us in a place where we are acutely aware of our need for the Lord. We recognize so clearly, I am desperate for God's grace. Now that's always true. We always need God's grace, right? But when we are in over our head, where we are on the receiving end of harsh treatment for our allegiance to Jesus, that's when we're acutely aware of what's always true. Those are moments when you catch a glimpse of grace-based strength. And you can give God glory because it's obvious the only way this worked out is because of Jesus. The third benefit is a future one. He says, and in the age to come, eternal life. No more persecutions, but spiritual family forever. This is treasure in heaven. And the rich young ruler made a profoundly sad decision. He kept his stuff rather than follow Jesus. Treasure missed. Okay, Jim, so how do we go and sell and give and follow? Find ways to invest your time, your energy, your resources in endeavors that serve Jesus' interest. How do I, how do, I do that? Great, great question. So I want to tell you about a friend of mine. Uh, I met Dr. Prohoda in one of our assignments. He was a general medical doctor. And uh, I went to his office a few times and I noticed something on the wall. In every examination room, it says, how can we pray for you? And they don't necessarily broach the topic, but I remember meeting someone who had gone to the doctor, who saw that on the wall, and said to Dr. Prohoda when he came in, could, you know, after they talked through whatever, so would you pray for me? He said, sure, and he prayed for her. And a conversation ensued. Where do you go to church? I go to this church. So she came 
to the church. Eventually, she, she accepted Jesus. She has become a spiritual force to be reckoned with because somebody was not just doing a job but using the job as a vehicle to do the real job, which is to be an all-in, all-out ambassador for Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, here's an amen statement, no matter the cost, the sacrifice will be worth it. Your life purpose, your goal is not to acquire stuff. And I'm saying that to someone who needs, who's got to get rid of a lot of stuff. I'm at that stage in life where, you know, I don't want the kids to have to deal with all this, but there's, the goal is not to inquire stuff, but to invest my time, my energy, my resources in what matters. And then in verse 30, he says this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. The rich young ruler was regarded as top tier. I mean, he's, he's at the head of the stack. He's top of the pile. Not by Jesus. Some of those who are on the bottom of the list are on his wow list. <laughs> How much we possess doesn't matter to God. For whom we use what we possess is all that matters. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. She has next to nothing, but she is in a different class altogether from the rich young ruler. Look at him, look at her. You would be drawn to him. A widow with nothing? And Jesus says, that's what I'm looking for. Okay, Jim, what am I supposed to do with this? All right. How nice of Paul to tell us exactly what to do. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. And the biblical criteria for riches is every one of us. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Fifty years ago, I don't know if it's this exact date, but it's pretty close. Fifty years ago, uh, Rochelle and I, had, we were married, uh, had dropped out of college, was working in heavy construction. Rochelle was working as a secretary. We were making good money. We were living a great life. And there was this youth pastor, a guy named Jay Letty, who was leading the youth ministry at the church I'd grown up in. And we were helping him as sponsors for the youth ministry. And there was a talk where we brought in a speaker, Bill McKee. He came and shared. And he was talking to the kids. But I still remember vividly, are you doing something that anyone can do or that only a child of God can do? And I talked to Rochelle after. I think God wants us to do something else. And she said, I think so too. 
So we went to college and seminary and all that. Fifty years ago, we made a decision. Am I well-serving Jesus by how well I use my time, my energy, my resources? And I am still asking that question today. Am I well-serving Jesus by how I use my time, my energy, my resources? This is not about giving Jesus 10% or his share this is about making the most of all I possess to serve Jesus. Now, this passage provides some guidance on how to do that. There's two pitfalls for a rich person. I have me to thank for my riches and stuff, or my stuff is my security. There's one antidote, which is God is my security, and he richly provides all I need for joy. And then he commends four activities. If you want to apply the sermon, here are the four things you need to do. He says, do good, be lavish in good works, be generous, not stingy, share what you have. Do those four things, and here are two results. You will convert what you have into heavenly treasure. You will take possession of life indeed. In other words, you will both really live now and in eternity. Now, I have to put a balance on here. This is not about being generous enough to earn salvation. Salvation is a free gift of inestimable value. The gift is given to all who come to Jesus acknowledging that I bring nothing to the table except this simple admission. I know I have nothing, but to those who come with nothing but raw, pure faith, he gives the glorious gift of salvation. And those who realize what they've been given are filled with joy. And the receipt of that gift fills them with a desire to embrace every opportunity and seize every opportunity to express their joy in the treasure that they have been given, which is salvation. Here's the point. Yes, no U-Hauls follow hearses, but those who use what they have all of it, to please Jesus, exchange their stuff for heavenly treasure, and it will be so worth it. Do you believe me? Show me by how you live. Let's pray. Father, all of us in this room, we have stuff. We are like the rich young ruler in many respects, I am sure. But we've also been rescued, brought nothing to the table, and you said, I want you for myself. And you've saved us by pure grace. Father, would you show each person in this room precisely how you want to use their time, their energy, their resources to accomplish what matters for eternity. Show them how to do that. Then give them the courage, the boldness, the faith to do that. I ask the same for myself. Show me how to live all in for you, nothing held back, because what you have given me is so precious. How can I do otherwise? 
Father, I look forward to a reunion someday when Jesus calls us and being able to look with knowing glances to one another about ways in which we have done exactly what you've said to do. Love me, nothing held back, for the cause of Christ. Amen.